this is actually our eighth week of meeting together. Seems like it's not been that long. So, um, excited, super excited. It might be the two cups of coffee I had, but I'm, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. I want to ask you a question. Does anybody have a rich uncle? You know, the proverbial rich uncle. When my rich uncle dies, I'll have a lot of money. Now, most of us don't have that rich uncle, but just suppose for a second that you did. And suppose he died. So your rich uncle died. And suppose that you really were his favorite niece or nephew, and he left you not some of all of the money that he had, but he left you all of it. His will read thusly, I desire that all my assets be liquidated and the funds deposited into my wonderful nephew's checking account directly and forthwithly. That is all. Now, after debating and deliberating over whether forthwithly was really a word, the truth begins to set in as they tell you that in ten business days, these liquidated assets totaling $228,685,212.08 will be deposited into your checking account, which is presently boasting a balance of $28.52. But hey, payday's next Tuesday, right? So you walk out to handshakes from the lawyers and dirty looks from your cousins. One of them calls you a name that hurts your feelings a little bit. But, oh well, your ship has come in and what they say can't change that at all. You decide you'll keep your job and you'll try to live as normally as possible so that your life isn't shaken too much out of proportion. And you decide that you won't tell anyone. No reason for anybody to know. And over the next ten days you get busy at your job, life moves on, and you forget that your rich uncle died and did anything for you. You forget to pencil in that little detail of $228 million into your checking account, into your checkbook ledger, and you go on struggling to make ends meet, panic-stricken when the power bill comes in at $350 after it was $112 last month. You start talking about getting a second job, working overtime. Anything you can do to keep your head above water, anything you can do to make it through, until these awful circumstances pass. Life is hard and getting harder. If only you had some way to find relief. All the while, $228 million sits in the bank, unrecognized, untapped, unused, and as good as worthless. Sound crazy? Maybe it sounds like a poor attempt at an attention-getting sermon illustration at the beginning of a message. Maybe it is. But what if what if it really is the picture of where we are and how we live as Christ followers in our Christian lives? What if our rich uncle died and left us everything and we've forgotten? Let's look into that possibility. We're entering the last stage of our redemptive arc, right? Everybody remember the, the redemptive arc that we've been going through? Viola, come on. It's not working. I love technology. Really? Unable to change the slide, it says. Well, why is it? <sighs> Can you change the slide for me? Thank you. Technology. We're entering the last stage of our redemptive history arc. We've looked at creation. 
We've looked at fall and we've looked at redemption. We've seen the foundational truths of the Trinity, God, creation, fall, depravity, the person of Christ, penal substitutionary atonement, election, and effectual calling. Now, after getting neck deep in theology and doctrine, we come to where the rubber meets the road. We come to nuts and bolts Christianity. We see where all this applies to our everyday living, and today we're talking about sanctification. Of all the bold moves of God, and he made a lot of bold moves throughout history, hadn't he? This step in redemptive history may be his boldest move. After sending his son to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death for us, God places the focus of redemptive history on us. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be the center of attention in God's redemptive plan. But listen to this amazing and unsettling passage in Ephesians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, please turn it there. Don't rely upon your technology, okay, because it'll fail you. Get a paper Bible and get it in front of your face. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 7 through 12. Ephesians 3, starting verse 7. Now listen, this is incredible. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Now, in that passage, I want to zero in on verses 8 through 10 for a second. And I just want to pull out some highlights from these verses. Unsearchable riches of Christ... The mystery hidden for ages. The manifold wisdom of God. And what is the focal point of all of these things? The church. The church is the center focal point of all of these things. God, in His redemptive work, in His master plan, puts all of His chips on a bunch of misfits and mess-ups. Pretty bold, isn't it? God chooses to show His manifold wisdom through us. Now, Andrew's going to wrap up our ark next week, and he's going to be talking about the church. So this message is not about the church per se, but it is about how we as the church can show right now... Let me say that again. This is about how we as the church can show right now the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is where sanctification becomes our central theme. So get ready. Buckle your safety belts. It's about to get turbulent, okay? That's good. Now, the Greek word for sanctification is found in the Bible a whopping... How many... How many is that? How many, how many fingers? Ten? The word that is Greek for sanctification, is used a whopping ten times in the Bible. So you say, well, it must not be a real big theme. Well, it is a big theme. 
Four times it's translated as holiness and six times as sanctification. So holiness and sanctification go hand in hand, okay? Ten times, hand in hand. You see that powerful illustration to drive that truth home, okay? It means consecration, purification, the effect of consecration, sanctification of heart and life to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. That's what the word sanctification means. Now, Hamlet talked last week about being called out, and this is the next step after that, which basically is being set apart. You want a two-word definition for sanctification? Set apart. Okay, that's what sanctification means. We are called out of the world by God and then set apart for God. Now, please, please, please note the order here. You are called out by God in justification. And then you're set apart for God in sanctification. Your justification is your standing before God. You are counted as righteous and are loved with the same love with which God the Father loves God the Son. Now, stop and think about that for a second. God in justification calls you to himself and gives you the standing of righteousness. And he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ. That's justification. You have just reason to be in the presence of God. And that's God's doing. And you have to start from that point before we can move into sanctification. Justification is a legal transaction. And once it is done, it is done. God did it, and God's not going to undo it. You want to talk about perseverance of the saints? God started this. God's going to perfect it. But you got to know that He did start it. This cannot be overemphasized. After, after, after being justified, God begins sanctifying you. When does He do that? It was after something, right? After justification, God begins the sanctifying work in you, okay? After you're justified. It is God conforming you to the image of His Son. Sanctification is the work of God to make real to you now what is true of you in eternity. It's making it real to you now. And again, please note that even this sanctifying work begins with God. We have beat the drum of election loudly and often, especially the last two weeks. We're going to continue to beat that drum. Because if it's not God doing it, it's not going to get done. Even sanctification. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. You can write that down. You don't have to turn there. But Philippians 2, 12 and 13 punctuates this when Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Here, the Philippians are told to work out their salvation. Why? Because it's God who works in them. Get a hold of that picture. It's the perfect picture of sanctification. God works it in. And then we work it out. I went the wrong way, didn't I? God worked it in. God works it in, and then we work it out. 
So that being said, let's look at a couple of things that sanctification is not. First, sanctification is not doing better. How many prayers have either started or ended this way? God, I'm so sorry that I'm not reading my Bible or praying or studying or witnessing or discipling or eating better or driving the speed limit or, or, or whatever. How many times have you prayed those prayers? And then comes this statement. God, I'm going to try to do better from now on. God, I promise I'm going to do better. God, I'm going to do better. I'm sorry that I haven't been doing better, but I'm going to do better from now on. Now, let's just rip that page out of our playbook, okay? Let's just get rid of that phrase, God, I'm going to do better. I did want to name the church, I'm going to do better church, but nobody liked it. But but, but let's rip that I'm going to do better thing out of our verbiage, out of our playbook. This was my efforts at getting or being sanctified for so long. I'll get up earlier. I'll stay up later. I'll do whatever I need to do to do better. Now let me say up front that the process of sanctification may have you up later. It may have you up earlier. Or it may alter your schedule in a myriad of ways, but it won't be because you're trying harder to do better. If you're taking notes, write this down. Sanctification is never guilt-induced. Sanctification is never guilt-induced. Never. Guilt is not the agent that will bring about your sanctification. We'll see why later. The second thing that sanctification is not is putting together your list of what you shouldn't do anymore. I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't run with those who do. Right? So many church folk measure their set-apartness by what they don't do anymore. And trust me, been there, done that. I've bragged about how long it's been since I've watched a movie at the movie theater when I was working at the movie theater. I don't watch these things. Yeah. And boy, I really thought I was holy as a result of that too. Have you seen the new... No, I haven't seen it. I work here. I get them free, and I don't watch them. Because I'm holy. This false spiritual pride creeps in and is so pharisaical that it can't be true holiness. Someone brings something up and in a smug, almost incredulous voice you say, oh, well, I don't do that. And it also leads to a martyr's type of complex, which is spiritual pride wrapped in self-pity. All your buddies are going out and you say you can't go to the pizza place and eat with them because that pizza place sells beer. Poor me, I can't even go eat pizza, I'm so holy. And don't think that I haven't been there in my life too many times. I'd say you might have been there too, but that's not true sanctification. So, what is biblical sanctification and how does it work in our lives today? These are the questions that matter. Let's start with a blunt scriptural statement that nails down the scope and the purpose of sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. If you want to turn there, we're going to read just the first part of that verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's pretty simple, isn't it? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's pretty simple and clear cut. God's will for your life is sanctification. 
God's will is that you are being set apart and consecrated, being made holy in your everyday lives, and therefore living to and for God in all that you do. And for a lot of us, this answers one of life's hardest questions. What's God's will for my life? It's God's will for every believer in history of the world that they be sanctified. Now that may sound like it's oversimplified, or it might not give you the detail that you're looking for in decision making or life planning, but it does boil everything down to the fact that God would have you be set apart for His purpose and His glory in everything. So when you're in a situation where you have to make a decision or a judgment call, you can ask yourself this question, what will bring God the most glory? That's sanctification. Again, it may seem simple, but I believe it can weed out a lot of possibilities and help us make better course adjustments on the path of life. Now, no study of sanctification would be complete without a look at Romans 6. Now, if you've got a Bible, get open up to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, get one. Because I want us to have this in front of our eyes. And this may cause mayhem and chaos, but... I really want everybody who could possibly maybe share with your neighbor, whatever, get this in front of your eyes. And as you're getting that in front of your eyes, Josiah's holding up multiple copies of the Bible if somebody needs one. While you're working that way, I want to highly recommend this book, especially in light of sanctification, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. You can see it's not a real big book, but it is thick. Let me say it that way. A very defining book in my life. One of the few books that I've read more than four times. More than once. But as we talk about sanctification, as we talk about the book of Romans, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. So, okay, Romans chapter 6. Get it in front of your eyes. Romans 6 is seated in an incredible flow of thought in the book of Romans. Paul has spent the first part of his letter establishing how everyone is guilty before a holy God and they have no hope if left to themselves. He then puts forth the importance of faith and says that through faith we can have peace with God. Listen, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 should be mastered by every individual that calls themselves a Christian. Five, six, seven, again, the whole Bible, you're like, should you master the whole Bible? Yes, you should. But Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, if you want to zero in and focus on something and study something, these passages should be mastered by every Christian. And they have so much to do with sanctification. And we don't have time to cover all four chapters, but chapter 6 gives us a potent overview of sanctification. Now let's read it. I'm going to read Romans chapter 6. I want you to read it with me. Follow with your eyes. I'm reading from the ESV, which I think most of these Bibles that we have here say that. So if there's a different word here, there, don't get tripped up. I'm going to read it straight through. No commentary. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means! Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen, people, that is an incredible chapter of Scripture. Let's hit the high points of it to get a proper grasp of the watts and hows of sanctification. Did you hear the word sanctification there a few times? The main point of the chapter is that we are not to continue in sin after we have been born again. Remember, the essence of sanctification is separating ourselves from profane things and presenting our life to God. So, Romans 6 tells us that we are to forsake sin. You say, well, that's fine, but how do we do that? Listen. Because here's the crux of it all. You ready? You ready? This means yes? This thing on? Are you ready? Okay. I saw some nods. That's good. Here's the crux of it all. How am I going to forsake sin? It has to be done by death and resurrection. You say, well, yeah. Okay, let's get a hold of that, okay? It has to be done by death and resurrection. Verses 2 through 4 drive this home early in the chapter. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6 says that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then comes the fact that if we died with Him, then we will live with Him. Jesus did not stay dead. Which is a staggering statement, is it not? We take it for granted, oh yeah, He came back from the dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. And that's good news. He lives now and forever in a glorified body, and that body is no longer even tempted by sin. He was tempted in every way that we were while he was here, yet without sin. Now he's not even tempted by sin. Put that together in your head. He is holy and righteous, and remember, 
Our justification is rooted in that, who He is and what He's done. And if we trust Him, we are holy and righteous. But the million-dollar question is, how do I tap into that life? How do I tap into that holy and righteous life? Verse 11 may be the single most important verse in all of the Bible on sanctification. It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me read it again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that word consider is an accounting term, isn't it, Ken? That's in here, by the way. It's an accounting term. Consider. Remember our rich uncle story at the beginning of the message? Having inherited enough money to live on for generations, the guy forgot to write it down in his checkbook. He never saw the money as in his account. That's the thought pattern in this word consider. It literally means to count, and it deals with reality. It's not hypothetical. You can't consider something that's hypothetical. It's got to be real. It deals with reality. If I consider or reckon, as another translation puts it, and I like the word reckon actually better because that sounds more mathematical, that my checkbook has $25 in it after I deposit $25 into it, it has $25 in it. You tracking with me? You with me? Okay. Now, what if I deposit $25 and never reckon it into my books? What if I deposit $25 and I put $2,500 in my checkbook and I start writing checks for $1,000? Those are called ricochet checks. Boing, boing. Because I've reckoned something into my account that's not there. Okay? What we're told to do here is to reckon into our lives what? Go back to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now what happens to the Christian who never reckons their co-death and co-resurrection with Christ into their lives? They live like they didn't die or rise with Christ. They forget and they keep on living like they used to live. Which is tragic. Absolutely, positively tragic. The process of sanctification in their lives is stalled and stymied so that there's no change and no difference in their lives. Their rich uncle has died and they're living like they didn't get a penny from him. Listen, guys. Our rich uncle died. Our rich uncle is actually our brother. And he died. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 And he has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 We don't have to live hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, in an impoverished spiritual mindset when it comes to our sanctification. We have all we need. We just have to reckon it as so. Which brings us to the last issue we have to face here. How do we reckon this into our account? 
And this was the mystery that just bumfuzzled me for years. I'm going to reckon it. I'm going to reckon it. I'm going to reckon it. It don't work that way. It's not a matter of, oh, I'll write it down. I'll put it in my, I don't know what I'd do. How do we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God? I believe it takes three things to see sanctification in full bloom in our lives. And the first is necessarily grace. Without grace, there is no reckoning, no considering, no hope of seeing the life of Christ worked into or out through us. Louis Giglio defines grace in three simple words. God at work. You want a definition of grace? That's it. God at work. And it's a great definition of grace. Remember the Philippians passage that said it is God who is at work in you? That's grace. And you can't do anything to work it out until you realize that God is working it in. You need grace to be properly sanctified. This is where the Holy Spirit who was given to us at the new birth becomes so important. And you know, side note, we don't talk much about the Holy Spirit of God. We're scared to death of the Holy Spirit of God. But without Him, there's no grace. An invisible, far-off God cannot help me when I'm grinding out an existence here in the grit and grime of the real world. But a God who is with us and in us most definitely can. The Spirit brings the grace of God to us and lives it out through us. We see Him doing through us what we can't do in and of ourselves. And this is grace. This is God at work, literally. And without grace, there's no reckoning, there's no sanctification. Like our salvation, God starts and sustains the work of sanctification in our lives through grace. So, obviously we need grace to reckon the truth of our co-death and resurrection into our lives, but what else do we need? I started to list this next item first, but then I realized that grace is the starting point that leads us to the next one, which is faith. We need grace to be properly sanctified, and we need faith. I'll reiterate a point. Just like our salvation, we are also sanctified by grace through... You finish it. By grace through faith. Right. It takes faith to reckon the death and resurrection of Christ into your account. Hebrews 11.6 is a famous verse that tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him for the one who approaches God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You can't work harder to make it happen. Paul makes this point forcefully in Galatians 3 verses 2 and 3 when he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And boy, you want to... That may be the shortest biography ever written of my life. Started by the Spirit, but try to be perfected by the flesh. It's got to be through faith. God's ongoing work in your life is realized by faith. But you can't just hope that God will bring these things about in your life. You have to have faith that He has already done it. And where does faith come from? Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You want to see faith come alive in your life? Read the Bible. And I can hear the argument forming in your head though. You said this wasn't about reading my Bible more. You said this wasn't about praying more. And I did. But I also said that being motivated by guilt to read your Bible more is not true sanctification. This is not about defeating or disabling guilt in your life. It's about knowing the truth that sets you free to live like you should. Are you, listen, are you hungry to have God honoring faith in your life? Then read the Bible asking God to work in your life, what you see in there. Faith activates grace and makes it a reality in your life. It's like the tracks that the train of grace runs on. Faith is the track. Grace is the train. You can't have a train running without the tracks. God says you have to have faith or grace can't be activated in your life. And without faith, sanctification will never be the God-wrought process that it's supposed to be in your life. And without faith, you'll never fully grasp the truth that in your justification and in your sanctification that God has started a good work in you. And Philippians 1.6 says what? That He will perfect it at the day of Christ Jesus. It takes faith to believe that. So we need grace and we need faith to reckon the death and life of Christ into our lives and to see the ball of sanctification start rolling in our lives. But there's one more vital element if we are to know the full force of this juggernaut of sanctification. We've mentioned grace and we've mentioned faith and I would say there's one more element, one more item that has to be present in your life if you're going to be properly sanctified. And that third element is the church. You will not know the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus in your own life apart from being properly fitted into the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about being part of a church universal and then watching David Jeremiah at your house on Sunday morning. That's not being a part of the church. I'm talking about being a part of a local congregation where you minister and are ministered to on a consistent basis. Where you die to yourself and see others as more important than yourself. Where you find and exercise your spiritual gift to the glory of God. As a matter of fact, there's no use for the spiritual gifts outside of the local church. There's no reason that they would even exist outside of the local church. Side note, love to talk to you about spiritual gifts. We're not going to do that today. I'd love to tell you where we stand as the elders, where I stand as me, um, but we're not going to do that today. But if you have any questions about that, feel free. Love, love those discussions. You cannot and will not know the extent of sanctification without a group of people encouraging you, holding you accountable, and propping you up in prayer. You want a good study? Study through the one another's of the New Testament. Do this to one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. And it's all through the New Testament and it builds community. We need each other if we're going to know the fullness of work of Christ in our individual lives. And if we're going to properly make disciples in the local church and all over the world, which necessarily will happen if we're properly being sanctified, if we're being properly sanctified, we will make disciples. We must make disciples. Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 said, Go ye therefore into all the nations and do what? Build churches? No. Tell people about me? Kind of. 
Go into all the world and make disciples. If that's not what we are about as Providence Bible Church, close the doors, don't come back next week. If we're not about making disciples, if we're not about you making disciples, me making disciples, us making disciples, we don't need to come back through those doors next week. And when we are properly sanctified, that will happen. I promise. Now, we've covered a lot in a little bit of time, and I want to recap before I finish this out. God's will for our lives is for us to be sanctified. Sanctification is the ongoing act of forsaking sin and living to the glory of God. It's not about doing better or abstaining from what we consider bad stuff. It's accomplished by seeing ourselves as having died with Christ and as having been raised with Him. We reckon that into our account by the means of grace, faith, and the church. Now, as we close, I want to look at two passages of Scripture that show two different sides of sanctification as it is worked into and out through our lives. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14 through 26. These are big chunks of Scripture, but it's necessary, I think. We could pick and choose, and but I, there's no need to do that. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You want to talk about sanctification and what it looks like? This is what it looks like. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that need that things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Boy, that could be so misconstrued. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, we could spend a month or two dissecting those verses. Again, we don't have time to do that. But what we see here is that sanctification will necessarily lead us to do good works. Please note that James is not saying work to get more sanctified. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that if your faith is real, grace will show itself through your works. You want to I've got faith. Well, how do you know you got faith? Well, I see God working in my life. I see the grace of God being worked out through my life. That's what James is talking about. You are justified by your works. Wait a second, aren't we justified by grace through faith? Yes, we are. But when we are justified by grace through faith, it necessarily leads to good works. Guys, listen, I'm going to say something that might hurt your feelings. It's not okay to not be reading your Bibles. It's not okay to not be praying. It shows that something's wrong. It shows that the passageway is clogged. 
It shows that grace is not flowing into and out through your life like it should be. I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to do just the opposite. I'm trying to get you to look at your heart and say, grace is an operative in my life. Do I have a faith problem? Do I have a word problem? Something's wrong. Sanctification brings you to these crossroads where you say, why don't I see these works active in my life? What's wrong with me, God? Is it my fault? Probably. But I don't want you to feel guilty about that. When you are being properly sanctified, good works happen. And it shows that you're justified. You say, well, I, you know, don't, don't tell me. I've got to read my Bible. You've got to read your Bible. You have to. Do you have to eat? Well, no, I don't have to eat. If you want to live, you've got to eat. Well, I could eat every three weeks. Yeah, you could. What kind of life would that be? Get into the Bible. Find the faith in there that God is giving you so that that grace can be activated in your life. That's what sanctification is all about. And it will show itself to be effective through the good works that happen in your life. This could be disconcerting if it was up to us to make these works happen. But it's not. It's up to Jesus. Turn your Bibles, lastly, to John chapter 15. And these are familiar passages, I know. But man, they go so well together. Listen, in this passage, we're going to read John 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus shows us how we do sanctification. And it's through Him. Now listen, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, let this sink into your spirit. Let this sink into my spirit. I'm not throwing rocks at you guys. John chapter 15, Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See justification there? Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that you may be guilty as sin and feel bad enough to do what you should do. No. Listen. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I don't want to be sanctified. Oh, you do want to be sanctified. Because when you are, then the joy of Jesus is in you and your joy is full. You're not guilty. You're not weighted down with shame and laden with guilt. You come and the love of Jesus sets you free to do the things that you're supposed to be doing. And you get to enjoy it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
Paul says to the Philippians, it's not a problem for me to keep saying this to you. Rejoice! Sanctification is about knowing the fullness of joy in your life so that people see it and like, I want that. I love that. That is beautiful. That is powerful. In the middle of affliction, in the middle of pain, rejoice in the Lord always. That's what sanctification is all about. The picture here is that sanctification happens as we make Jesus the center of our lives. As we abide in Him, His life comes out through us in the form of fruit that is enjoyed by others, which ultimately leads to God being glorified. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Abiding in the love of Christ, knowing that we have died with Him and have been raised with Him, our lives become so much more than they would be if we tried harder to do Better, we can reckon into our account His death, His life, His righteousness, His power, His love, and know that all of this is ours. Stephen Curtis Chapman puts it perfectly in his song, Show Yourselves to Be, when he says, love these lines. Fruit cannot help but grow if the branch is joined into the tree, and love cannot help but show in the one who goes where Jesus leads. Abide in Him, and guys, I promise, sanctification will happen. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31 is where we're going to finish. And it sums it up perfectly when the Holy Spirit reminds us that, starting in verse 28, listen, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to know what sanctification is? Sanctification is the person of Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And we have been given the gift of faith, Hamlet talked about last week, by the grace of God. And we get to live that out amongst each other. You want to reckon the truth of the co-death and co-resurrection with Christ into your life? It takes grace. It takes faith. It takes the church. And as we activate and see these things working in our lives, we are drawn closer to each other. And we necessarily join hearts and arms and shoulders and we march out into the world to be slaughtered like sheep. And our Father is glorified in that. He has become unto us by God's doing sanctification. I would sum it up like this. Sanctification is God's way of driving us to humility. Sanctification is the process of God showing us more and more and more just what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's sanctification. He is sanctification. He, church, is my sanctification. He, church, is your sanctification. He, church, is our sanctification. Reckon it to be so in your life. Let's pray.
God, we are thankful that You do what we cannot do. We are thankful that You're choosing to drive us to humility through this process of sanctification. We thank You that You have begun this good work and we thank You that You will perfect it. And God, as it is being perfected in our lives, we become more and more of an offering to You. Every second, every moment, every breath, a mercy. And God, we thank You that today we cannot do this. But You can. Help us, God, to know of Your ability. Help us to know the truth of our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. And may we reckon it so into our lives so that we become more and more of an offering to You so that everything we do becomes an offering of praise to You. So that everything we do is our way of saying hallelujah, praise the Lord. Every word, every thought, every deed. Offered up to You. Moving away from ourselves individually. Toward ourselves corporately. And toward the person of Christ who has been made for us. Sanctification. Thank You, God, that You've begun a good work. Thank You that You will perfect it. May we trust that. And may we live in a way that shows people who You are.